We've been trying to bring people in as fill-ins when regulars on this podcast are away. And today we have the debut of veteran journalist Bob Higgs. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Gardner, Courtney Estalfi, and the aforementioned Bob Higgs. Welcome all. we got good stories to talk about. This has been a good week for the podcast. I was worried with the regulars being gone, would we be able to maintain but we've had no end of news, and it's been good discussions, as it will be today. We wondered whether a 1953 amendment to the Ohio Constitution that was approved by voters actually blocks the move by lawmakers today to disembowel the state school board. Lisa, we know more today than we did yesterday. What's the word? Yes, we talked about this in a story yesterday about those two bills that are working their way through the House and Senate to move the Department of Education under the governor. But in 1953, there was a voter-approved constitutional amendment that removed the Education Department from the governor's oversight and created the Ohio Board of Education. So people who are fighting against these bills, they say that Article 6, Section 4 says there shall be a state board of education, a superintendent of public instruction instruction appointed by the board and the powers and duties shall be prescribed by law, which they have been in this in the meantime. But Senator Andrew Brenner, the Republican from Delaware County, supports these bills, House Bill 112 and Senate Bill 1, to move and rename the Department of Education and, you know, rename it to the Department of Education and workforce. He says the Constitution is clear. He says that education policy and everything the board does is under the power of the legislature, and he says we have the right to strip them of that power. But Bill Phyllis, with the Ohio Coalition for Equity and Advocacy of School Funding, says the Ohio Bill of Rights says no. Article 1, Section 2 of the Bill of Rights says all political power is inherent in the people, and they have the right to alter, reform, or abolish policy as deemed necessary. I, this is a tough one, because clearly the people voted in 1953 to not have the governor oversee education. That was the, the motive for this, and generally, motive matters. But the wording does say it will have the powers and duties as enumerated by the legislature, which seems to be an out. If we had a sane Supreme Court without the son of a governor on it that doesn't know what a conflict of interest is, I think this would be a tough call for them because the people voted. They didn't want the governor in charge of education. That is as clear as can be. But I don't think they're going to go that way because they're all just so ridiculous to the right that they don't really put sane thought into what they're doing. They're going to use that clause that says the legislature can do whatever it wants and say they can do whatever they want, even though it disembowels the voters. Yeah, I do see. Yeah, there. I do see both sides of this story. I mean, you can certainly read that, you know, either way. But, you know, people are cons- a lot of groups are concerned about this. They're really worried about um politicizing education as we've seen happen in other states and they're afraid it's going to come here and they're afraid even more of education policy decisions that are made without public input because currently you know when the department of education changes policy they have public hearings so the public can weigh in but in this way it just goes to the governor and his cabinet and they decide i actually like the Department of Education idea, because I think the school board has been ridiculously politicized. And when people vote on them, they don't know who they are. But it doesn't matter. The voters spoke. 
The voters passed an amendment that said, we want a board of education to determine education policy. And if we had a legitimate Supreme Court, they would say that. They would say, look, the motive of the voters was to not go the way the lawmakers are going now. I'm, you know, I'm sure there'll be lawsuits, but you cannot count on this Supreme Court anymore to do the right thing. They're going to do whatever the Republicans want them to do. You're listening to Today in Ohio. When we discussed how a drug-resistant fungal infection was ravaging nursing homes, little did we know that our bodies are filled with fungi, but they might be keeping us healthy. Gretchen Crowen wrote a terrific story laying out how this might play into our overall health and well-being. Bob, what's the science? Well, we are familiar with the idea that there's all kinds of bacteria in our bodies, and there's been lots of research on good bacteria and bad bacteria, but up until more recently, people weren't focused on fungi. And the re- this researcher at Case it became interested in it, and the science he's finding shows that the fungi are just as intertwined with our bodies as the bacteria can be. There's good uh, interactions where they work in balance with each other. There's a presence of them throughout our bodies. And because of that, there's lots of excitement over the potential for more breakthroughs on in medicine. You know, Bill Bryson wrote a great book a while back that looked at the, I think, the history of the world. It was one book. But there was a section which was terrifying where he talks about the bacteria in our bodies and how much we rely on them and how if they go out of whack, they could they could destroy humanity as we know it. This is a whole new avenue of that, that that our, we're basically gigantic bacteria and fungi farms. And if they're in balance, it helps keep us healthy. When it gets out of whack, we're in big trouble. Yeah, and that's that's really the thing is that we are, uh, as as science progresses and we learn more and more about our bodies, we're finding they're much more complex than we used to believe, and that balance is huge. And part of the research that this uh, the guy at Case has done, um, a scientist named Mahmoud Ghanoum, uh he found that when the, in one example, when the balance gets out of whack, like as in HIV patients, uh, they have a greater tendency to get thrush in their mouth. But there's, there's speculation that there may be links with cancers or with Crohn's disease or uh, diabetes or obesity. I mean, a whole host of things uh, that could be intertwined with the presence of these fungi throughout our body and figuring out how they balance against each other could lead to better ways to treat them all. Gretchen's a terrific, terrific writer. So she puts this all into perspective. It's well worth reading for everybody except germaphobes. This will scare the germaphobes (laughs) to no end to know what's running around in their systems. Good stuff. Check it out. It's on cleveland.com and you are listening to today in Ohio. Earlier this week, we thought the mayor and city council of Cleveland would quickly and amicably settle their differences on how to spend the last big block of federal stimulus money. They had great ideas, Courtney. Were we correct? Yeah, within within potentially hours here, no, no more than a day after both city council president Blaine Griffin and Mayor Justin Bibb rolled out separate competing spending plans for the last big chunk of ARPA money. 
they came to this agreement and now we kind of have a path forward. This is tentative. City Council still has to sign off on the whole shebang and there are a couple pockets still of disagreement. So things could still change here. But generally, I want to give you the outline of what we're now looking at for this last big important chunk of federal stimulus money. So one thing totally unaffected and left intact in this deal between these two guys was Bibb's plan to use $50 million to assemble sites around the city, remediate them, and prep them for good-paying jobs for Cleveland residents. And, and city council, during a Monday meeting, several members spoke in favor of that plan. Council President Blaine Griffin liked it. So that wasn't too controversial. Everyone's on board with it. That's going forward. But two other big initiatives uh, that Bibb put forth – um, what he proposed to be a $15 million violence prevention endowment fund that would be rolled out slowly over the coming years, that was scaled back from 15 to $10 million. And that, you know, reduces the money that would be spent each year on violence prevention programs. Bibb's plan to spend $30 million for infrastructure, street safety improvements, resurfacing roads, doing parks, you know, school safety lights, roundabouts, a bunch of things in those categories. That was scaled back by a third from $30 million to $20 million. So those are some of the big changes on this side. You, you love to see this kind of work. They both they both had great ideas. Bibs were pretty dramatic. It's good to have money, right? You can do these kinds of things when you have big blocks of cash. <laughs> uh, but they weren't in a bit of conflict and it was going to be interesting to see how much but these guys worked it out and they're they're moving forward and we'll have to see what the dramatic effects of this are but there's some real innovation to what they're doing here uh you wish that cuyahoga county council would have used the same kind of innovative thought with how they spent their money good stuff yeah, and, and I do think it bears mentioning here, you know, Blaine Griffin came into the day on Monday pitching almost $50 million more for housing on top of housing money that's already come out of Cleveland's ARPA allocation. He also wanted to see $60 million for neighborhood projects. Those would be identified and, and largely decided by city council members for use in their wards. That money was scaled back from his proposed $60 million to $35 million. Interestingly, another point of contention here that I think is worth noting is Westside Market money. That is one that is up in the air. We'll have to see how that unfolds in the coming weeks. But Bib initially wanted $20 million to do a bunch of capital upgrades for the market. We know that building has fallen into disrepair. And he also wants some startup money to transition it to this new nonprofit model of management. And Blaine said city council is, the compromise called for about $15 million, so less than Bib originally wanted. But Blaine is not sold on, on that, nor are his colleagues on city council. They they see the market as, you know, being in a, a neighborhood that's doing pretty good. It's a popular destination. They don't know if they want to spend $15 million on it. So for the longest time, I, I think journalists have looked at the state of the city addresses as pretty dreadful things to cover. With all that he has to talk about here, are you looking forward to next week? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm excited to see, you know, what we reported at the end of Bibb's first year was that he was laying, it seemed, a lot of groundwork for the rest of his term in office. So that means this year, we're looking to see if he starts executing a, a lot of these big initiatives. And, and the ARPA money could go a long way towards that. And well, tickets to his address are sold out. He's doing it at a city high school. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how he presents all this. You're listening to Today in Ohio. 
This next one is about the law of unintended consequences or the butterfly effect or some such. With Major League Baseball using time clocks and other measures to speed up games, some baseball teams are extending beer sales because they were losing sales of beer and hurting their bottom line, and they want to give fans more time to imbibe. Lisa, what are the Guardians doing? They're not doing anything so far. Um, So this new pitch clock rule has shortened Major League Baseball games by about a half an hour average, and that's just so far this season. That's the lowest or shortest game time since 1984. So most stadiums stop selling beer after the seventh inning. That's when last call is, or three hours after the first pitch if the game goes long. So that shortens the time that people can buy booze and beer at the stadiums. So the Arizona Diamond backs, the Texas Rangers, the Minnesota Twins, and the Milwaukee Brewers have extended their alcohol sales through the eighth inning. Other teams considering that are the Miami Marlins and the New York Mets, but as so far the Guardians are going to stick to the status quo. They're going to stop selling beer and alcohol at the end of the seventh inning, but apparently alcohol can be purchased till the end of the game if you're seated in a premium area. I, I the idea of limiting the beer sales was to not have major inebriation in a long game. If you're going mm-hmm. to the stands repeatedly and the game stretches on to three and a half, four hours, you get into trouble when people are drunk. But but this does kind of cut into the Guardians' profits, and they are the smallest market team. They can't afford to lose that money. I'm a bit surprised that they haven't made this adjustment because all you'd be doing right is is going back to the same basic time period right. that you had previously. Right. And so, uh, you know, the the season is young, so they may change their minds after they see, you know, a bigger loss of revenue. So I'm sure they're busy calculating that right now. But I have to laugh because, you know, of course, Cleveland was the site of the 10 cent beer night riot back in the 70s. Right. <laughs> right. And that, that's what they're trying to avoid. It's a balancing act. I do suspect that they'll they'll do what the other teams are doing mainly because they really need the revenue to pay all those players. You're listening to today in Ohio. Art critic, Steve Litt tells us the Cleveland museum of art has acquired a painting by a significant artist. Bob, who is she and what makes her significant? The artist is a woman named Amy Sherald and she has notoriety in part because she was commissioned to paint a 2018 portrait of Michelle Obama. But her style is very different from the typical stayed portraits. Uh, Her whole approach is to try and isolate race so that it isn't a dominant topic in the conversation. She uses race skin tones, as she did with Michelle Obama. And with this portrait that uh, the museum just bought, of uh, she did of one of her nephews. And she has said that the idea is we need to de-emphasize race and we need to try and present the present and a future of hope rather than and steer away from what she's called an assumption that all of black life is tied to struggle, uh, trying to open up more minds. Uh, and this is the latest in a collection of portraits that's becoming a significant part of the museum's uh, collection uh, and, and part of an effort to promote more diversity there. Okay, Steve Litt has the story about it, and we have some images, right? You can see it in the on the online story, Bob? Yes, there's lots of images on the story, and some of them 
it's really interesting because when you look at her portrait of, of the nephew and at the one of Michelle Obama, the backgrounds tend to be flat, maybe pastel colors, but, but a flat background and the subject tends to feel like they're closer to a camera, uh, like the picture put them closer to the artist. Um, they're, because she uses the gray skin tones, their faces look almost like a black and white photography, but she'll often have these other brilliant colors woven in. And she has technique that gives the paintings texture. So in the portrait of the nephew, wearing he's wearing a lacrosse jersey, and she painted the numbers on his jersey with a series of swirls, so it looks like stitch work uh, against a flatter style for the, the jersey itself. It's, it's very interesting to see. And you can see them on cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Courtney, you've got a couple of police questions today. The first one is that an oversight board is recommending some light discipline for an officer based on how he dealt with a crisis intervention call. This is a scary story for the LGBTQ community. What's it about? Yeah, absolutely. So the Civilian Police Review Board ruled on Tuesday that Officer Brendan Marzan, that that he should be getting some low-level discipline here for unprofessional conduct. The final decision is going to the chief to decide. Uh, but what we learned about this case with Marzan is it, it involved this this crisis intervention call in 2021. You know, there's been this big push to get officers to respond to folks in crisis better and, 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 and you know, tailor their response to folks going through s- some issues. And, and he arrived at this scene. There was a 911 call for a wellness check here. This, this woman was supposed to be checked on to see if she was okay. And, and, and the call turned into just a mess. It got chaotic. The woman involved, Catherine Toth, her wife was knocked down and, and Toth suffered injuries from use of forces, all of this. She was the one that was supposed to be getting checked on and receiving care here. And, and what we learned, you know, dishearteningly is that outside of Toth's presence, this officer Marzan this body cam caught him using stereotypes to talk about her gross things, calling her a lesbian, lesbian, quote, called her, quote, very stereotypical, called her, quote, super overdramatic. And just like this lack of understanding on a call when officers are supposed to be understanding. That's what a crisis intervention call really calls for here. And and Toth went before the board and, and she herself blasted the police response that day. She said, not one single officer showed showed her one single iota of empathy. They were laughing, they were bullying her, and they were bigoted. I, I just don't get how a police officer today would say these things. I, I mean, you can't pretend to be ignorant anymore of the current state of things, and why you would be doing that is just beyond me. They're trained. Everybody knows that the the in a crisis intervention, you've got to tone things down. And, you know, this isn't a firing offense, but it just shows the lack of sensitivity that some people on this department still have. Yeah. And and like you said, that crisis intervention training, we're supposed to be getting better at that. There's been such a big focus on getting that training to officers. And what was particularly troubling in the story as well, that another officer who responded with Marzan, a sergeant who specializes in crisis training, 
She didn't help, you know, reduce the tension here. It also found that she had engaged in unprofessional conduct. She told the woman's neighbor that it was a psychological related call. And then she didn't go on to complete hospital paperwork that she was supposed to. Now we've seen, you know, as we talk about police reform and, and modernizing and getting police on board with, with our, our, our standards in society nowadays, Justin Bibb has been putting forth some money to increase the, the co-responder model where you have mental health professionals going out with police officers there should be this effort to get this 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 right, and it's very disheartening, but I guess unsurprising that, that we're not there yet. You'd hope that as part of the discipline, there is a requirement for serious refresher training on how to treat people with decency and humanity. You are listening to Today in Ohio. We have an update on a com- conversation from a week or two ago. What are Destination Cleveland and NASA doing to capitalize on Cleveland's role as one of the few major cities in the path of next year's total eclipse of the sun? Lisa, I, I, I guess I didn't realize when we talked before just how kind of unique we are and that mm-hmm. we're a big city on the path, directly on the path. Yes, and everybody is getting ready for April 8th, 2024. And Cleveland is actually one of the largest cities in the path of totality, which is 124 miles wide. So just for comparison, so in the path of totality is Cleveland, Dayton, and Akron. Canton, Columbus, and Cincinnati are not in the path of totality. They're close, but no cigar. Indianapolis, Erie, Pennsylvania, and Buffalo, New York are also in the path of totality. But Destination Cleveland is wasting no time in their promotion efforts. They're assembling a committee to do event marketing, logistics, security, and so on, with the goal of making sure that people choose Cleveland for the eclipse. Uh, Emily Lauer with Destination Cleveland says we're, you know, a leader in the science, astronomy, and aerospace and we're in the path of totality. So, of course, we're the perfect destination. NASA Glenn Research Center is a designated sunspot for the eclipse. They'll have a live broadcast and uh, programs and events that are related to that. Avon Lake is billing itself as ground zero in the center of totality. They'll have the most at three minutes and 54 seconds. That's about 20 seconds more than Cleveland would have. So, and (laughs) yeah, so you get 20 more seconds um, if you go to Avon Lake. And then the shores and islands of Ohio is touting unobstructed views on Lake Erie and the islands area, including a jet express water excursion. The Museum of Natural History astronomer Nick Anderson says you really need to be in the path of totality. He says being close to the path is not enough. We ought to to start a movement to declare it a holiday for Northeast Ohio. <laughs> I mean, come on, this doesn't happen. This is such a rarity. When the, when we had the eclipse elsewhere in the country a few years ago, and it said, hey, in 2024, Cleveland's going to be in the center of it. I just didn't realize how rare it is. Mm-hmm. And we all ought to be off to just kind of worship the sun and the moon and Enjoy it. Of course, it'll probably be a cloudy day and we won't see a thing. <laughs> well, and, and the Cleveland.com article on this has a map from AccuWeather that shows the historical chance of cloud cover on April 8th. And unfortunately, in the entire path of totality, Ohio has the highest chance of cloud cover. So the lowest chance will be in southwest Texas for cloud cover. And interestingly enough, 
you know, we'll already have 40,000 people in town because the NCAA Women's Final Four will be in Cleveland the weekend before the eclipse. The championship game will be Sunday night, the day before the eclipse. So we'll we'll already have a crowd. But some people are estimating we could see 139,000 to over a half a million visitors to Cleveland area. Oh, I, I do hope it's a cloudless day. This could be very cool for the city. You're listening to Today in Ohio. So, Bob, is there a mystery about why the Ohio lottery director resigned or retired? I think the answer is a big yes. Yes, it is a big yes. Uh, he retired, but it clearly caught people by surprise. He turned in his note yesterday. His retirement notice was two lines. Basically, I'm leaving my job immediately, and he cited medical reasons. But he didn't elaborate on anything. Uh Retiring, he's. I, I looked it up. I think he's 61 years old, so it's a little early for retirement. And this is a guy who has a track record of being a good administrator. He's not like under scandal at the head of the lottery. And it's it's a huge job, too. The lottery is a $4 billion a year operation and sells tickets at like 10,000 locations. They, they have video lottery terminals at racetracks and McDonald's only been there since 2019, but by all accounts has done a pretty good job handling it. He was on the, but But he did something that doesn't play well with Republicans in an increasingly polarized state. What did he do? Uh, He backed uh, Bride Gross Sweeney for reelection, a Democrat. Uh, And he backed her over a Republican endorsed candidate. And that is, Worse than any scandal he could have led at the Lottery Commission in the eyes of the party. Uh, he was facing censure and perhaps expulsion from the Central Committee and Executive Committees in Cuyahoga County for the Republican Party over this when he stepped down from that about a month ago. Uh, uh yeah, he, I, he said then he had multiple reasons for leaving. And when we asked him point blank about the, the endorsement and the anger from Republicans, he said that might have been on my mind as well. Uh, he didn't give us any indication yesterday, but the governor's office was careful to say that the squabble with the party had nothing to do with it. Yeah, the, the governor's office is, is trying to say there's nothing here, but we're hearing from enough people that say, no, 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 there's something there. We're digging deeper, and apparently there might be some official record that we can get that might throw some doubt. I hope the governor's office isn't telling us an untruth about this, something very fishy about why he left. And, and, And it'll be sad if it's that radical Republicans so upset that he backed Bride Rose Sweeney put pressure on the governor's office to oust him. I mean, that that would be a real sign of the dysfunction of this state. We've already seen some similar things happening with what happened to Tom Patton, where he was yes. censured by the party. for He didn't even vote for a Democrat. He voted for a Republican, but it was the wrong Republican. The Republican Party in Cuyahoga County in Ohio has gotten increasingly out of control. Stay tuned. Wait, we wait, just a little this. just a little uh, housekeeping. We never mentioned who this person was. Oh, what's oh, his sorry. name? Yeah, his name's Pat McDonald. And the sad thing here is, if it's what Chris was just describing, Pat McDonald is a quality public servant. Uh, I have dealt with him many times over the years. He does not play politics with his job. He did a pretty good job with the county board of elections in Cuyahoga County, which is historically has been a train wreck at times. Uh, 
and he's been done a good job in, in Columbus. And it's a loss for the state government if he's being pushed out for that reason. And you, you wonder if they're trying to say, pay no attention to that political crisis behind a curtain. Yeah. It had nothing to do with this. We'll, we'll get to the bottom of it. Good catch, Lisa. You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, Courtney, second police story. How is a Cleveland cop who was fired five years ago for killing someone getting his job back and his badge and gun? Yeah, Alan Buford, as of last week, is back serving as a Cleveland police officer. He was reinstated April 6th, and I want to give folks a reminder of what happened here. There was there was a trial back in, in, in 2017 over this March 2015 shooting. So there was an 18-year-old man, a young man, Brandon Jones, he was unarmed. And, and Buford was responding to a call of a burglary at a convenience store in Glenville, and Buford claims that he shot Jones in self-defense after Jones, you know, made some kind of aggressive move toward him. And and like I said, this went to trial in Muni Court in 2015. A judge acquitted Buford of, of that misdemeanor charge in, in Jones's death. And in the city fired him around that time. We've seen appeals go on now for several years. And now an arbiter you know, he's got his job back. Basically, through these appeals, an arbiter said the city couldn't prove that Buford's use of deadly force was objectively unreasonable. The arbiter ruled the firing was unjust. A county common pleas judge affirmed that decision. And then and then after an appeal court hearing, the city didn't pursue it further and take it to the Supreme Court. So it's over now. He's back. Yeah, and look, I I can see why the arbitrator ruled that way. They're basically saying you didn't have evidence that said the to to disprove what he said about the threat he felt. And this is a tragic case because he killed somebody who was unarmed, but he was acquitted. And if you look at it, who's to prove that what he said happened didn't happen, right? Yeah, I mean, and this kind of just gets at the the bar. You got to reach uh, in some cases when when you have issues of of police violence and fallout like this, right? You know, Cleveland didn't escape escape this issue in 2018. The city had to pay Jones's family almost a million dollars. They had to pay him nine hundred thousand dollars to settle a wrongful death lawsuit, and now you have this person back on the force. I mean, we have yeah. this conversation often of the city moving to get rid of people on occasions, other times they don't. And then the process just brings folks right back to the job. Well, and it's interesting this comes when it does, because we're on the eve or within days of getting the, the, the word on what's going to happen with the Akron police killing of Jalen Walker. Again, officers killing somebody who apparently had a gun. We're waiting for all the confirmation. We expect it'll come next week. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for Thursday. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Courtney. Thank you, Lisa. And thanks to everybody who listens. Layla will be back in the house tomorrow to wrap up a week of the news. 